Do you know how much the average American, well, how many times does the average American eat out? So how, how many times per week? Does the average American, oh man, the average is so complicated because I think young people eat out way more than older people um, on average. I'm going to say six times a week. That, okay. So Robert likes to brag about how he is, quote, a badass estimator. And this is just adding fuel to that fire because that is bang on. Yes. <laughs> it is 5.9 times per week. Take that, Carla. <laughs> Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode where we are once again digging into the ladies of sex and the city. So Robert and I, we recently had COVID and we were down for the count for like a good five or six days at least. Speak for yourself, <laughs> not down at all. Coughing a lot, yes. Laying around watching the sex in the city, uh, no. Don't pretend like you didn't watch Game of Thrones with me for a solid three days. We definitely did that. Oh, well, that's just normal life. <laughs> in any event, we were trying to rest a lot. And I was, in particular, I was trying to rest a lot. I had it a little worse than you did. Um, and I was re-watching like, the whole series of Sex and the City. Because I have pretty fond memories of watching it like in college, law school years, I think roughly for me. And it just so did not live up to my memory of it at all. Was it, was there a laugh track in this one? There's no laugh track, thankfully, but it's just so toxic in so many ways. The way that the women are, are portrayed as just kind of airheadish and they make some really terrible decisions. So we've already done one episode where we bash on Carrie for her ridiculousness and spending like $40,000 on shoes without even realizing it. Um, but there's another episode that's very, very heavily money oriented, and we just couldn't resist digging into that one. So this is going to be about season six, episode one called To Market to Market. And it is all about the stock market. There are some really bad puns about like love and the stock market. We're going to hear a little bit of that today in the episode. Um, but it's just, I think, a great launching point to learn some good money lessons and also to have a little bit of fun bashing on how ridiculous this show actually was because whew, it was really bad. I don't know. This particular episode seems like it is basically the way the real world works all the time. Yeah. That's yeah, you're right. We never mind. It's great. It's going to be super realistic. And what we're going to be doing is praising the show for its accurate portrayal of life and money. My favorite part was the cameo from the, my big fat Greek wedding guy again in this episode. Aiden, is that the name? That is his name. He does make a brief appearance in this episode um, with a baby, but not a major plot point. There's a lot of other things going on. So, but my big fat Greek wedding, yay! <laughs> my big fat Greek wedding is a great movie that that holds a much higher place in my heart than Sex and the City. All right, Carla, I am putting a formal request in right now that at some point this year we need to do an episode on my big fat Greek wedding. Can we do it? I, can we make it happen? I think we can do it. Yeah, there's some good money stuff in there, as I recall. How much did Joey Fatone make to play in this film? Great question. More or less than his NSYNC career? How much can you really make working as a travel agent? Great question. These are all important questions. But coming, not the question of the soon. day. Yes, but for today, we are going to stick with Sex and the City. So the basic plot overview of the episode is that Carrie has been invited to ring the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. That's how the... the Episode. The season opens, right? Yeah, that's how the, the episode starts. And it sort of sets in motion all these stock market-related issues and puns. Um, and Carrie is dating a Burger at the time. And she's kind of nervous about going on her very first date with him. 
Samantha is hooking up with a stockbroker. That's pretty much all you need to know. There's not really not that much like meaty plot going on. Oh, one like fun storyline. Miranda is the only character that I can kind of tolerate anymore. And she, she is like falling back in love with Steve at this point. They've already had the baby together, but they're not together. And she's like falling back in love with Steve. Okay, hold on. Because I thought this was a perfect example of how they make these women look immature and ridiculous and, and terrible. This brilliant lawyer, this partner in a law firm, has realized that she has very strong feelings for Steve, you know, her baby daddy. And uh, she is super nervous and has tons of anxiety about talking to him about the way she feels. And she stumbles all over her words when ordinarily she is a great communicator. I think they basically made it seem like, oh, these frail women, they just can't handle themselves when they're in the midst of love. And, and poor Miranda just falls apart trying to communicate something uh, emotional, which would would be completely ridiculous. I don't think she'd have a hard time conveying her real thoughts to Steve and doing it in a way that was with confidence and with empathy and with love. Yeah, that's a fair criticism of the show. I, Miranda is very likable, and I do think, well, most of the time anyway, um, it is it's a very human trait that even though you're a kind of a powerhouse in other areas of your life, love is, is complicated, right? And it's tricky and it's emotional and it trips up a lot of people. So I don't think that's terrible. My robot software does not have that programming feature. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I don't absolutely hate that storyline, but I do think she probably could have found it within herself to be honest with Steve and have a, you know, an adult conversation about their relationship going forward. But... They eventually figure it out. It's all fine. Well, my vote is we dive right into that first clip with Carrie uh, at the start of the stock exchange. And of course, in typical Carrie fashion, she is running late and <laughs> nearly misses the opening bell. Today, one of New York's favorite newspapers, the New York Star, is going public. And here to open trading is one of its favorite columnists, Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> and you can press it. Okay, so that's a like iconic New York Stock Exchange bell that we hear here. Why, why is Carrie the one ringing the bell? Wouldn't they have, usually isn't there like a big group of people? And if they're going to have them, wouldn't they have like the editor-in-chief or the current owner or something like that? Other than just a random columnist who have, is she just the most celebrated columnist in the whole city in this whole newspaper? I don't think it's that crazy that they would pick their star columnist. And she she is represented as being like one of the more popular writers that works for the newspaper. Um, but yeah, that's a fair question. So first interesting factoid is that this is still a thing that happens. We've, I kind of think of this as like super outdated. Why would anybody need to be there in person anymore? Why does there need to be an actual bell anymore? But it's still going on today. You can go online and find out who's going to be the person that has the honor of ringing the opening bell. They also do this for closing as well, which I have to imagine. Do they hit like, like a big gong instead? <laughs> I don't know, actually. I think it's the same bell noise, but uh, it's like, it's got to be way less fun during the closing bell, right? Everybody's like packing up and going home for the day. Womp, womp, yeah, activity yeah. over. But uh, it's, that's a thing that happens. So twice a day, there are like somebody who has the honor of ringing the, the bell, pushing the little button. Um, so that's still going on. It's usually not anybody that's very exciting. Like I scrolled through the list and there was nobody that I recognized. There's companies that you recognize. I think like IBM was on the list, but a lot of them were companies that I didn't even recognize. So it's not like, I don't know, it's not like a super big deal, but it would be a fun thing to get to, to ring the opening bell. So you're saying I shouldn't put together a YouTube channel where I string together the clips of opening and closing bell ringers every week and expect it to supplement my income in a way that I no longer need a job? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a smash hit. All right. Not super exciting. So Good to know. I think one interesting point that this raises, though, so this is the New York Star. It's a New York newspaper, and it's going public. What does it really mean for a company to go public, Robert? Uh, that is a wonderful question. I suppose I don't really know. I mean, companies, if when they're typically started, are privately held, right? Somebody 
owns them. And then when you go public, it's basically making shares available for anybody and everybody to buy. But I don't know much about the details. Yeah, it's kind of an opaque process. So basically what you're doing is selling shares in the company, but it can vary as to like exactly what kind of ownership you are selling. And then the more interesting question I think is how these companies go about setting the price for the initial stock that they're going to sell. I was really curious to look into that, but unfortunately the answer is basically like gobbledygook. Um, It depends basically. Yeah. Like they give you all kinds of technical jargon about the kinds of factors that may or may not matter, but basically it's very individualized to each company. They're digging into the company's financials. They're making predictions based on how other similar companies have performed And they're just trying to like wave their magic wand and come up with a number that they think will be good enough to like attract people, but like also have the potential for lots of, lots of growth in the future. So there's really not an easy at all answer to that question. It's very individualized to each company. Well, I know people who are super geeked out about the stock market and that kind of thing always get really pumped when there's a big IPO, when there's some company that we all know. So like when Google went public or when Facebook or Tesla or whoever else, you know, one of those companies that you've heard of goes public. Everyone's really curious about what's going to happen. And is the is the estimate of, of the initial value, is the IPO price right? Will, will the price skyrocket because people think it's worth way more than the bank did when they put it out there? Or is it going to plummet and everyone who bought in at the initial price is going to be a little disappointed? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that that is a very complicated and stressful decision to make to set that opening number. So I'm glad that's not my job because I think that would be a hard thing for me to do. I think it's typically investment bankers who are um, making those, get, like getting involved with an initial public offering and making those decisions. It it feels to me like there's a lot of alchemy that goes into those those decisions. They're just sort of hoping for the best in a lot of cases. I was going to say, if you're into conservative, stable investing, you probably shouldn't worry too much about IPOs, right? It's not, it's more of a gamble, right? You don't have any information about the real value of the stock beyond what the people who put together this IPO came up with and your impressions on what the market is going to do. And that's not really any different than any other time when you might buy an individual stock. And to me, that's probably not the best path. A mutual fund, an index fund based investing approach where you aren't trying to gamble on the short-term fluctuations of an individual stock, but are instead planning on buying and holding for the long run is probably the way to go. And ignoring IPOs is a nice conservative, responsible strategy, in my opinion. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, you can certainly hit home runs and get very lucky with um, with IPOs, with buying stocks you know, in their infancy, but it is definitely a gamble, right? There have been plenty of companies where the stock just plummeted soon after its its first offering. It's not the approach that you and I like to take. We're a fan of purchasing index funds where we own a small slice of hundreds of different types of companies. And if one company takes off and does really well, that will end up in our portfolio, right? Because we're holding a small piece of all the top companies and the index funds while we're tucked in bed asleep at night We'll be like bringing in the new front runners and dropping out the old ones who are who are faltering, which is a pretty fantastic way to be able to invest. Okay, before we leave this topic, and I think we put the IPO and you know the, her company going public uh, to bed. I do think we should first talk about um, is a newspaper, right? It's probably a weird time for them to be going public when this was coming out. This was two thousand three. Okay, yeah. yeah. Who's buying a newspaper stock in 2003? Don't they see the the writing on the internet? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, 2003 was definitely early in the decline of newspapers. But yeah, it, it was clear to a lot of people that print journalism was going to be suffering. So um, I'm sure we're going to hear in the next clip Charlotte is buying stock in this uh, company, in this newspaper, but I imagine not a heck of a lot of people were just clamoring for this, so. Okay, last thing. Um, 
what are the hours of the stock market? So they have this opening bell and this closing bell. They're only open for like a handful of hours a day, right? Yeah, 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, Eastern time, New York time. And it's really hard for me to pin down a precise reason as to why in this modern era we still have these fixed hours. I saw a lot of different accounts of it online. A lot of people say that it's just tradition. You know, obviously the stock market exchange was in existence long before everything was digitized. And so people needed like a, a fixed number of hours where they could go and reliably be able to buy and sell things in person to another human. So partly tradition, I think part of it is that it gives a sense of stability to the market. People have time because stocks are emotional things, right? We're just humans behind these stocks who are making decisions about what they're worth. We get frenzied and we get scared. And especially when we're on that scared end of the spectrum, it's easy for things to just plummet in value. So having a fixed number of hours, I think a lot of people appreciate because it gives people a chance to cool off and hopefully let clearer thinking prevail. So, I was going to say, there are a lot of electronic markets out there today for things like crypto, and that's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. It never turns off. It never stops. I imagine that does lead to more of the volatility we see in that space. I mean, certainly crypto is uh, going to move around a whole lot anyway, because it, it doesn't have the same stability as the big companies that you'd have in the stock market backing it. But nevertheless, I have to imagine that you're right only being open for a few hours a day, shutting down every night gives people a chance to make level-headed decisions. It also allows for things like mutual funds and stuff to do a bunch of processing at night and make buy and sell choices with fixed price amounts and yeah, exactly. execute a whole lot of things. Yeah. I think demand is also just a lot lower during those off hours and like people... People oh, want that's a true. Off, right? well, so. well, the thing is, your price is only as relevant as the volume of trading, right? If volume, exactly. if your trading volume diminishes very low, you aren't seeing a representative slice of the market, and you may not really have a, a firm appreciation for the true value. And people are making a deal because it's the only deal that they can make. Uh, whereas, if the full market of buyers and sellers were there, ready to make buying and selling decisions you might end up with a different outcome. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So mix all of those things together in the mixing bowl and you've got a good recipe for, it makes sense to have some fixed hours when we're engaging in trading of these big established companies. Okay, so in the episode, Carrie goes, she rings that bell, she has fun with it and she's going to lunch, brunch, dinner, whatever it is with her friends and is ready to tell them all about her, uh, her fun time. I met the ladies for lunch in the fashionable meat market. It was so exciting, it almost made me want to invest in something. I love the stock market. A room full of screaming, sweating men all trying to get it up. I don't invest anymore. It's too volatile. Exactly. I like my money right where I can see it, hanging in my closet. Actually, your stock is up. I bought some shares of your newspaper yesterday. Really? Well, thank you, sweetie. Was it expensive? Oh, no, you're cheap. Well, I never. <laughs> Ladies. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. $20 for a hamburger. Oh, that's reasonable. So they went to the meat market and Samantha felt right at home. <laughs> okay, this clip might be the worst like 30, 40 seconds of all time in the history of television. No. I feel like it sets this horrible expectation for what investing really means. It portrays these women as just like ditzes who have no idea about anything when it comes to personal finance. Uh, I, so let's go through one well, by well, hold one. Hold on, hold on. Because at the start, like if we want to talk about them as a population, I'm not sure it's really as unrepresentative as you might think it is. You've got four people. Yes, they're all, you know, middle class, upper middle class adults who seem to have professional careers. One of them seems to be invested in the stock market and is, thinks that's a reasonable thing to do. One of them is scared of the stock market. Two of them are not really all that interested. <laughs> is that is that far from reality? I'm not sure that it is. I'm not saying it's unrepresentative. I'm just saying it's a terrible message to be 
delivering to the world. Is this supposed it, to be one of those the more you know commercials that we saw on NBC as children or whatever would, network that was? I would like it to be at least a little bit more in the realm of the more you know. I get it. It's a TV show. They're trying to like represent what's going on. Up next on PBS, they're trying to make Sex it in the City. Fun. I get it. I get it. But it just wrinkles my chain so much. So let's go one by one through their responses, right? So Carrie starts off by saying, it almost made me want to invest in something. And Samantha's response is, oh, I love the stock market. I'm just sweaty man trying to get it up. Just like so ridiculous. She obviously isn't even engaging in the conversation about actual investing. She's just talking about sex, which is like all her character is, right? She's just like walking sex. Do they allow women on the New York Stock Exchange floor? Um, Yes. They do. <laughs> Apparently, Samantha doesn't know that. Yeah, it's just upsetting in a number of ways. Uh, yeah, so her response is just like trash, right? She doesn't. She's not actually saying anything. She's just making a joke. So then we have Miranda chiming in, saying, "Oh, I don't invest anymore. It's too volatile." So let's talk about that because that's a really common thing for people to feel about stocks, right? And it's. It's not wrong, but it's misguided because it's taking a very short-term view of things when it comes to, to investing in stocks. Now, I'm prepared to call it wrong. I think, look, people have this idea that the stock market is like this gambling sort of thing where you're going to go in and you're going to buy a stock and you're going to hang on to it and, and then you're going to move it when the time is right. Like you're some sort of wizard who understands the markets better than everybody else that you're gambling and playing against. Like you're playing poker at the casino and there's no house head. It's just you versus your opponents. No, it's stupid. If you think like that, then you're doing it wrong. I mean, there are plenty of people who enjoy investing that way. And I don't have any problem with anybody who wants to do that. But if you're just a regular person, why are you buying a stock right now and thinking it's going to go up and planning on selling it at some point in the future? Like if you need access to that money at some point soon, Buying a stock is a dumb thing to do. You shouldn't think of it as a liquid investment that you could go. I mean, it is more liquid than many other investment types, but it's not something that you should put your money into and expect it to be a stable hold of value that you could go extract at any point in the future. Well, and the reason for that is because it is volatile. It does go up and down. So on any small time frame, you are not at all guaranteed or even likely to be up in the stock market, right? If you buy a share of Tesla today, Tesla has been on a tear for a really long time, but I think it's been just as vulnerable as everything else in the recent downturn. No, oh, I think it's been had. even worse. Yeah. yeah. So like if you bought a share of Tesla a year ago, you probably would have been really, really happy for like nine months. And then the last few months you would have been really, really disappointed. So if you like never logged into your Tesla account to see how your Tesla share was doing until a year later, you'd be like, oh my God, this is terrible. My Tesla stock is way down. Investing in the stock market is terrible. I'm never doing this again. But if you invest in a broad swath of companies, which is what mutual funds and index funds allow you to do, and you're buying little pieces of lots of companies, it's very unlikely that on the whole, all of those companies are going to be down for a long period of time, right? So if you were to not check your stock account portfolio for like 10 years, you've got a 90% plus chance that when you check that balance at the end of 10 years, it's going to be significantly up from where it was when you started. Right. I think that the reality for most people is investing should be a buy and hold decision. Like you're doing this for the long term. Yes. This, stocks are not a short term investment unless you're trying to do some speculation and gambling, which, you know, is gambling. You should realize that that's what you're doing when you're getting into it. But if you're doing it for real investing and trying to have a nice conservative gradual progression, you buy stuff, you hold it, you ignore it, and then you sell it when you decide that it's time to liquidate that asset at some point way in the future. Yeah. So that, the volatility is just not relevant for most yeah. people. Well, certainly for retirement accounts and any money that you're hoping to put away for a long time and let it grow and work for you, right? That's, that is money that is very wisely invested in the stock market. You should never put money into the stock market that you know you're going to need in like six months or a year. 
that's a silly move. But anything that you're like, okay, this is money that I don't need for my normal life. I'm going to set it aside and help it and have it help me become rich slowly over time and have like a stable cushion in life. That's what the stock market is for. So I think what these women are misunderstanding is all of that, right? They don't get any of that. And for all of them, they're in their 30s at this point. I think some of them might be in her 40s, but they're young, right? So it would still be such a smart move for them to be investing. I also want to add that I think we have a human nature problem when it comes to these sorts of things. And we think about the volatility. Most people are interested in getting on the boat when it's going up, you know, getting on the train when it's going uphill, right? When the stock value is increasing and people feel like things are really good and promising, people are like, let me jump on the bandwagon and get on this train. And then when things go bad and the share price is declining and people are really nervous that the value of their investment is decreasing, people are ready to jump off the train and and not really get on board. And of course, that's the exact wrong thing to do with your money. When the stock market has gone down, everything is on sale. Buy more of it, right? Yeah. If you, I realize that there are recessions and there are causes for stock market decreases, but in reality, the long-term valuation of most of those companies is going down because of speculation on people participating in the market's behalf, thinking that the long-term value is going down. But did it really go down several percent from yesterday or 20% from a year ago or whatever it has done recently, if, if that's truly the case, then it'd be a bad idea to invest. But in reality, it probably hasn't. And there's an opportunity for you to buy it on sale, get more shares of the same company for the same amount of money. It's a great deal. And I think that volatility fear stops people from making that smart choice. When if you step back and analyze the math and the numbers, it, it wouldn't be that hard of a decision to make. Yeah, I fully agree. And a lot of smart people say volatility is the price you pay for long-term growth, right? So if you're willing to grit your teeth and ride out the down cycles, you will almost certainly be rewarded for it over a long time horizon of 10 to 30 or 40 years, right? So it's not a smart decision that Miranda has made for herself here. I hope that Cynthia Nixon, the actress, has made better decisions. So let's keep going through. So then we next hear Carrie chime in, and she says, Exactly, Miranda. It's too volatile. I agree. I like my money right where I can see it, in my closet. Which is certainly true for her. She (laughs) spends a lot of money on clothes. Uh, Like that last episode where we talked about how she spent $40,000 on shoes. Um, We recently did a presentation at Camp Fi uh, where we talked about Carrie as an example of just ridiculous spending on clothes. And there are some internet sleuths who have like priced a lot of her outfits. And there's one in particular that clocks in at like $30,000. She wore it twice. Come on. Oh, yeah. So only $15,000 per wear for the outfit. I, I do think it's a bit crazy that her decision to invest in things that she can see in her closet uh, is, you know, she's investing in things that traditionally go down in value. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that clothing, unless it was like worn by a celebrity or, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe the jersey that somebody wore in the big game or, or the dress that somebody wore to some big function is worth money, but... Your clothes aren't. Yeah, your clothes are not going to hold their value. It's just, I, it's, a, it's a silly comment for her to make in the context of an investment conversation, right? And I get it. She's just saying like, I don't, that's not where I spend my money. But the thing is, it's not spending money to invest, right? You're making a decision that... You're parking it somewhere yeah. and expecting some kind of a return with some risk in exchange. Yeah, so it's like the spending is what she's really talking about and spending is not at all the same as investing. I think that's why it bugs me so much that she's bringing that up in this context. So also not a great life decision to spend all of your money on clothing instead of building yourself a nice cushion for later in life when you don't feel like working as much. Yeah, I thought she would learn from her uh, being the old woman who lived in her shoes, Yeah, but apparently yeah. not. Yeah, I guess that didn't actually register. And then finally, we hear from Charlotte, who's like, well, I actually bought some of your stock and it's gone up a little bit, Um, which I think they're having lunch like the very day after she 
did the IPO, like the, the company, the newspaper went public. So apparently she's talking about stock going up over the course of a day, which, uh, you know, I guess is not nothing, but surely it's not that much. I mean, if you bought it and it's gone up by 10%, there's no reason you can't liquidate that, sell it and be satisfied with your gains. Yeah, no, that's true. I think it's interesting. Charlotte is the rich one for all of you listeners out there like me who are not super familiar with all the characters. Charlotte has family money, right? Yeah. And she has um, a good bit of money from her divorce settlement as well, I think. Okay. So she has more money than the rest of the gals. And it's kind of interesting that she's the one who seems interested in the stock market. And I think this is, if we want to talk about it, sending the wrong message to the public, I think that's part of, a, of the problem too. We've got the idea that regular, ordinary people with normal jobs and normal incomes aren't interested in the stock market, but only the the rich person is. And that couldn't be further from the truth about what we should be doing in the world. Yeah. I I mean, obviously the less income you have, the harder it is to set aside a portion of it for your future by saving it and investing it. But also I would argue the more important it is, right? I mean, we're all going to be in a situation eventually where we either can't work anymore or we're just pretty worn out in life and we don't want to and building a nest egg for yourself so that you're prepared for that when it rolls around is one of the most important things that you can do, right? We, we have social security in this country. There are many, many millions of people who rely purely on that, but it doesn't pay a huge amount of money. And the less your income is, the less you've been paying into social security over the years, the less your payout is going to be at the end of your life. So it's even more important to um, really try to find ways to cut back on things that are more frivolous, like clothing, carry, and put some of that money towards savings for the the later years in life. Okay. Well, Berger is not just the guy that Carrie is thinking about dating in this episode. <laughs> uh, it is the meal that they mention on the menu and there's a $20 burger there. This is nearly yes. 20 years later now that we're recording this episode. And a $20 burger sounds ridiculous even today. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you went to like a fancier restaurant, it wouldn't seem totally insane to pay that much for a burger. What do you need on your burger right now in 2022 to justify (laughs) a $20 price tag? Go. Ooh, okay. Maybe like some really good truffle sauce. I'm a big fan of truffles. That would maybe make it worth 20 bucks for me. Also a big fan of mushrooms. I'm going to need like some really solid grilled mushrooms on there. Um, yeah, like a really good cheese. I like all kinds of cheese. Some, some sort of really yummy cheese that's like higher end cheese. I don't know. What about you? I'm having a hard time getting there. I I mean, (laughs) look, I love a delicious burger with all the whatever fixings make it fancy. Um, Maybe some sort of like upgraded bacon, like a Mm, a pork belly or something like that. Pork belly is good stuff. Yeah. Sorry, pigs. We really like you, but we also like eating you. Yeah. Some sort of like really (laughs) deliciously prepared pork belly on top of the burger might make it worthwhile, but man, I, it's hard to swallow. <laughs> but um, so do you know how much the average American, well, how many times does the average American eat out? Um, let's say in a year, in a month, in, in, a, a, in a day. Let's, <laughs> so the statistic that I have for us is by the week. So how, how many times per week? Does the average American... Oh man, the average is so complicated because I think young people eat out way more than older people um, on average. I'm going to say six times a week. Okay. So Robert likes to brag about how he is, quote, a badass estimator. And this is just adding fuel to that fire because that is bang on. Yes. (laughs) It is 5.9 times per week. Take that, Carla. (laughs) So 5.9 times per week. And how much do you think they spend on an annual basis? Okay, well, I'm going to give away my estimator crown because I'm going to be way (laughs) off on this. Uh, How much are they spending annually? Mm, I don't know. $7,500. Oh, good heavens. No, it's not that much. Okay, I don't know. I I mathed it up wrong. Oh, I I added way too many weeks. Sorry. I was thinking 100 weeks a year, and that's obviously not right. Um, I'm really concerned about your math skills. Oh, no, aren't you it's an fading. engineer? Ooh, this is upsetting. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, you're right. Uh, there's 8,760 <laughs> hours in the year, and I just assumed everybody spent about a dollar an hour almost on, on eating out. Am I wrong about that? Is that not a right, not a good way to estimate it? Um, no. First of all, are you eating every single hour of the day? Because if so, we should study your metabolism and find out how you're not 900 pounds. Uh, guess I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the number? So the average American spends about $3,500 a year eating out. Per, that's per household. So it's... Uh, it's hard to pin it down exactly. Like there's some varying estimates out there based on different surveys that they've done, but that's like in the ballpark. Okay. So if we do the math on that, $3,500 a year, 5.9 times a week, there are 52 weeks in a year, Robert, not a hundred. Yeah, so it's about 10 bucks or so yeah, a week, about 11, uh, a, a meal. Yeah, about $11 per meal. So either they're doing a lot of like really small fast food type meals balanced with some bigger like nicer restaurants, or it's a lot of fast food because it's really hard to eat at like a restaurant restaurant for 11 bucks. Yeah, that's a, well, there's a reason why you find so many McDonald's on street corners. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, How does that, so how do you think we compare to that average? Oh, we eat out like 30 times a week. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many hours I have to eat, Carla. Uh Uh-huh. I'm going to say that we eat out less than the average, but spend more than the average dollar amount. Uh, so you're wrong on both counts. We d- Well, I'm sorry. You're right on one count, wrong on another. So we definitely don't eat out 5.9 times per week. That's for sure. We eat out a lot less frequently than that. But apparently when we do eat out, we are eating at nicer places because we are, we are, so right now we're recording this in August According to Mint, which we use to track our spending, so far we have spent $1,150 on like restaurant restaurants and then like fast food and fast casual type places. Okay. So we are on pace to do pretty like better than $3,500 a year for sure. Um, But we are not eating out 5.9 times per week. So we're doing better than the average, but not like crazy better. We have lots of room for improvement. We do need to remember that I travel a little bit from time to time for work and I eat out a lot when I do that. And that certainly influences um, our numbers in a way that's probably not being counted in there. And it certainly influences the way that I think about my own diet. Yeah, that's true. I was actually very surprised to see that the number was that high at 1150 because I don't feel like we eat out much at all. But I think you're right. A lot of your work It's a lot of Chipotle. There's a lot of burritos in that number. We do eat a lot of Chipotle. It's our favorite thing. So we're stacking up a little better against the average American. But I do think this is an important place for people to really pay attention to, right? Because we're talking about how important it is to save for your later years. Eating out is one of the easiest places to cut that fat and like... And yeah, cut the proverbial fat, not the actual fat, and like save some money towards your future. Okay, well, let's move on in the episode and let's hear where uh, Carrie is writing a column about her own musings on the stock market and the rest of her life. Oh boy, here we go. Later that day, I got to thinking about the stock market and dating. Are they really that different? If you have a bad stock, you can lose your shirt. If you have a bad date, you can lose your will to live. And if the date is good, the stakes get even higher. After weathering all the ups and downs, you could one day find yourself with nothing. So, when it comes to finance and dating, I couldn't help but wonder, why do we keep investing? Dearest Carla, (laughs) do you find investing and dating to be basically a mirror of each other the same thing i do think should we talk in our soft carrie bradshaw radio voices no no okay uh i guess there are some parallels between investing and dating but it's just this whole thing just strikes me as so corny and ridiculous and like the music in the background is like the deep thoughts music and it just feels like okay here we go um but I do think there's some parallels, right? You invest in relationships and just like with stocks, we've been talking about how smart it is to like buy and hold for a long time. And I do think the same can be true for relationships, right? It's not a one size fits all. Not everybody likes that model or fits well with that model, 
but it certainly worked for you and I. We got lucky meeting super young and the relationship that we have is built on this foundation of so many years and it's much richer and deeper than it would be if we'd met like last week. What I think is a parallel between dating and investing is it's all about a long-term valuation, right? The share price of any stock is is basically the sum total of all investors' opinion about what it's going to be worth over the long haul, right? Yeah. When you're dating somebody and you're deciding to continue that relationship or move on and see what else is out there, you should probably also be taking a long-term outlook because many relationships have the opportunity to blossom into more with a little bit of time. Many do not. And often you can see whether there's potential there uh, and it's worth investing in and spending your time with or not. And it's really all about the long-term view, not what's happening right now in the current moment. Yeah. I think that is such good advice in a lot of different walks of life, right? You invest in your career, you invest in yourself and your health and in your wealth, right? All these things are areas where it's really helpful to have a zoomed out, big picture, long-term view of things. So Carrie's posing this question about like, why do we even bother to keep investing? We could lose our shirts in the stock market and in dating, like we could get our hearts broken. I mean, we do it because like, if you try hard in the dating world, you are more likely to end up in a a stable, loving relationship that's, that's very rewarding. And we keep investing in the stock market because we understand the fundamentals that stocks are based on, which is real companies that provide value to real people, and that that's likely to continue well into the future and we're very unlikely to lose our shirt. Well, in your stock portfolio, hopefully you have some diversification. In your dating portfolio, what kind of diversification do you have these days, Carla? Carla? I don't know. I don't know that I want to get into that on a public podcast, you know. Wow. <laughs> Brutal. So there is one thing that I did want to talk about with dating and numbers. And this is something that you may have heard called the rule of 37 or 37%. So I had never heard of this until the last couple of weeks. We had a friend come to visit us and he brought this up in the context of airplane seats, I think. Yeah. So this is exciting to me to talk about. It's a math concept <laughs> and it uses one of my favorite irrational numbers, Euler's number. For oh, those I love of, that one. That's, right? Oh, that's the best one. Yeah. So it is approximately 2.71828, I think, something like that. Anyway, Euler's number is also known as E. It's a mathematical constant. And this 37% rule is effectively the ratio of 1 over E, right? It's the reciprocal of Euler's number. And that's where that comes from. There's some math that we don't need to get into here because Carla will murder me and edit it out afterwards. So we'll bypass all the math and basically say that if you're in some situation where there is some large number of things that you have a chance to look at once and never choose from again, how do you know what the best strategy is? So imagine you're going down a one-way road and you know that there are 100 gas stations ahead of you and you want to buy gas for the cheapest possible amount, but you can never go back and turn around and visit any of the gas stations that you passed, when do you stop, right? If you stop at the first one, there's only like a one in 100 chance that you have found the best price if the prices are randomly distributed across this length of 100 gas stations. If you stop at the last one, well, Same thing. There's a 1 in 100 chance that it's the best one, and you will probably know that it is not, as you've seen many that were better than it along the way. So where should you stop? Well, that's where this 37% rule comes in. When there's some set like this, when you know how many things you're going to go see, you should see 37% of them and discard them. You should reject them out of hand. You should say none of these, the first 37% are total garbage. You have no interest in them, but you should pay attention because you need to know what is the best among them. And then when you start looking at the 38% and forward after that from, you know, 38 to 100%, you should choose the first one you encounter that is better than what you saw in the first 37%. That strategy is the way to optimize what you're looking for. That gives you the best result 37% of the time. So in the dating world, this exact same example applies. If you know that you're going to date 50 people 
you should go through and date the first 37% of them, rate them, understand where they stand, understand what you liked and didn't like about them. And then for the balance of those 50 people, as soon as you find one who's better than the best in that first 37%, lock it down. Got to put a (laughs) ring on it. That's the way to play it because it's not going to get better than that. That is the best probabilistic way to end up with the happiest outcome. So you and I met, as I said, very young. And I guess the final piece of that is, unfortunately, if you never find anyone better than the best in your first 37%, (laughs) you just have to take the last person. That's That's what you have to do. That doesn't sound good. So then you're back to a one in a hundred. Well, fortunately, if we're talking about dating people, um, there's not really a finite number of people that you can date. You can always change it up. You can decide that you will engage with people differently. Just switch from like Tinder to Match.com, right? To eHarmony. Exactly. There's so many options out there, (laughs) Carla. So you and I met very young, Robert. Did you, uh, was I the 37th percentile or like where, I don't know. Where did I fall? Does, is this how you and I ended up together? It is, yes. So I, I counted it out and I'm like, I'll probably date like three people in my life. <laughs> I dated one and then I dated you and I said, well, you were better than the first one. So that's, you know, the th- smaller numbers you have to work with, the harder it is to make that decision. Oh, the flattery. A girl can't take it. It's just too much. <laughs> no, I will say that I think I there are a lot of ways to get to know somebody and you don't have to actually date them to understand if they're right for you. You can take a good cross-section of the population and see if you think they'd be a good fit and decide that so many of them aren't and that you know, you're kind of a unicorn. <laughs> oh, oh, stop it. <laughs> um, okay, so I think the rule of 37 is fascinating. I do think it has fairly limited utility. So oh, absolutely. Our friend brought it up in the context of picking an airplane seat, like on a Southwest flight where you get to like walk down the aisle and see what's good and what's not, which I suppose is one area where it could potentially be helpful to you. In the dating world, like uh, it just feels so ridiculous because you don't know how many people you're going to end up dating, right? Like that is, it is, it's not finite, as we've said. This is an area where being a good estimator helps. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Maybe, so I, I did see that there were internet articles suggesting that people use this in their home search, which I Absolutely. think, yeah, is potentially helpful advice. Although again, same thing, like you could have something that's truly unusual, a great deal, a real winner really early in your search or really late. I mean, so. The fundamental premise behind this is that you should look at a decent sized sample to understand the distribution of things that are randomly distributed. And then once you kind of have that information, that research at the ready, you can then go make a good decision for something that is around the peak of what you should realistically expect or hopefully better. Yeah, I, I get that. And I think that's a reasonable approach to things. I do think like with real estate in particular, you can go through that 37% in like an hour or two on Zillow, right? So you can do a lot of the the legwork and the research without having to actually go and look at 37 out of 100 houses and then make sure that you actually go continue to look at more houses so that you're picking the next best one. I mean, it just, in practice, it's a little bit silly, but it's a fun concept. I think the core value of like get a good sample size before you pull the trigger on something final is is really good solid life advice. Okay. Well, let's move on to our final clip from the episode, which uh, is less direct about the stock market uh, with Carrie's perspective and jumps over to Samantha's story where she has started started dating a guy uh, who is a stock trader, broker, or whatever, something along those lines. And he happened to have an insider tip for her uh, that he shared. And it sounded like this was... This was not exactly within the bounds of the law. FBI, get dressed. You're under arrest for insider trading. Turns out Chip Kilkenny was quite the ladies' man. And every time a woman went down, the Dow went up. Ma'am, can you undo your cuffs so we can use ours? Oh, man. So cheesy. So, yeah, she's literally in bed with this guy. The FBI walks in to arrest him for insider trading. So, yeah, earlier in the show... He had given her a stock tip, and now it's like revealed that apparently he does this all the time. So so my favorite part about the stock tip was it was about Elon Pharmaceuticals. This is the company that my college roommate's dad worked at as a statistician. So um, 
If you're listening, Mr. Davis, uh, I hope this wasn't uh, any news that you gave to this stockbroker guy. <laughs> uh, fun fact. I appreciate that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about insider trading and what it really means, because what we don't really have any background on this. All we know is that this guy tells Samantha, check out Elon, Elon Pharmaceuticals. Elon, E-L-O-N. Elon Pharmaceuticals. Um, like something, it's about to split, I think is what he tells her. So yeah, the value is about to go up. And she like rolls over in bed and writes on a little notepad, a reminder to herself to go check out this company, presumably. And then the next time they get together, he gets arrested for insider trading. So insider trading is a very real crime. And most famously, Martha Stewart was arrested for it. Hardened criminal, that woman. Hardened criminal that she that she is. Um, so here's, I'm going to read you the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, definition of what insider trading means. Oh boy, let me get, uh, let me get a, a refreshment. This is going to be exciting. <laughs> Buying or selling a security in breach of a fiduciary duty or other relationship of trust and confidence while in possession of material non-public information about that security. So security meaning stock there. So buying or selling a stock while in possession of non-public material information, material meaning that it's going to affect the price of the stock, um, and you are in a position where you are not supposed to be revealing that information. Carla, I think we probably should have given a warning before you read this that you needed to pull over if you're driving and listening to this podcast because that put people to sleep. (laughs) Coming from the guy who geeks out about bath statistics and goes on and on about Euler's constant or whatever it is. Who doesn't have a favorite irrational number? Literally everyone. Uh, so that's what insider trading is defined as. So in real life, like a, a more down-to-earth definition of it, you've got a tipper and a tippy, right? The person who's giving the tip. Are we back to the burger example? <laughs> we are not. So the person who's giving the stock tip and the person who's receiving it. Um, so it's not illegal to be on the receiving end unless you act on it. Well, sure. But it's illegal to give the tip regardless of whether they act on it, right? Because you're you're breaching like some duty of confidentiality or a fiduci- fiduciary duty that you owe. Are there any crimes that you can commit simply by hearing something? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I did see that a very common defense to insider trading is that, oh, I just overheard it at a restaurant or something, um, which is not a good defense may huh? or may not work out for you depending <laughs> on the circumstances. Um, but I did, I looked into this a little bit cause I think it's kind of fascinating. So the securities and exchange commission has a staff of 1300 people who are dedicated to like finding, investigating potential insider trading crimes. And they basically have like very sophisticated, Um, software that helps them identify potential red flags, things that they need to look into more. Basically, when people are buying or or selling just before some big event happens that materially or significantly affects the value of the stock. So the Martha Stewart story, I feel like most of us don't really know that story, right? We just kind of knew that she was in jail for insider trading. I just know that she and Snoop seem to be friends, and it's because they're able to bond over their time of being incarcerated. Um, right. So what actually happened is that Martha Stewart owned stock in this company called Imclone. She was like deep into her success as, you know, being Martha Stewart at that point. Um, she had so much money and she invested it wisely because she's smarter than these Sex and the City characters. Um, and she had a little bit of stock in this Imclone company. So it was like a pharmaceutical company and they had this cancer-fighting drug that was supposed to be coming out soon. That was public information. And what was not public is that the FDA had just denied approval for this potentially cancer-fighting drug. Martha sold her Imclone stock. Well, sure. Surely she just wanted to liquidate those assets, right? Right. Um, She sells just before the announcement of the FDA's denial And she, this is the crazy part. She only ended up saving herself about $45,000 worth of loss, which if you're Martha Stewart is like 
she spends that in a week probably I'm guessing like no big deal for her no skin off her nose um so it was a very small loss that she ended up avoiding but because of the timing it got caught in the SEC's like red flag traps the um owner of Imclone had been like tipping off some friends and family and apparently Martha Stewart like had some connections to him so there was an investigation and apparently her defense was I had a pre-standing arrangement with my stockbroker that he was supposed to sell Imclone stock as soon as it got below $60 per share and she was like it fell below $60 per share like he did what he was supposed to do so they were investigating, trying to figure out whether that was an arrangement that they'd actually had. And there was some handwritten note um, on the file that her stockbroker had for her that said like sell at 60 or something, but it was written in a different color pen than all the rest of the notes. Well, because so, it was an important thing for him to know because uh, everybody, any broker worth their salt has handwritten notes telling them what to to do right right yeah this isn't good so uh anyway it was there was a lot more evidence than that these are just like the fun juicy parts um but she was not actually convicted of insider trading i guess they felt like they didn't have enough evidence to move forward with that she was instead convicted of obstruction of justice because they felt like she had deleted some messages like some files had been deleted it's not that they felt like that surely there was clear evidence that she had done so or she pled guilty to it because they had her pinned yes thank you for correcting my poor choice of words um no that's exactly right they i think they had some much more credible evidence on that front so she was charged with insider trading but eventually only went to prison for obstruction of justice and like i think perjury she lied and they were able to catch her in some lies um, all over $45,000. I'm sure she will just regret that until the day she dies. I don't know. I think it helped her reinvent her image. I think she's a little bit hardened, hardened now and is able to appeal to a broader swath of America. Maybe that's true. She did apparently have a pretty cushy time in jail. She was in a minimum security prison, which I have visited before. Um, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> it's not that juicy. It was just like in my capacity as a law clerk, I got to visit a jail. Anyway, it was not that, like, minimum security prisons are not that bad. They were, I was so surprised by how open it was. Like, I remember asking the guards, can they just leave? Because I see no, I see no fences. I see nothing of any kind actually holding these people here. And the guard was like, oh, yeah. But, you know, they don't because they know that if they leave, they're going to get caught eventually. And then they'll have to come back and they won't get this cushy setup. A big addition to your sentence and you're no longer in the minimum security party. Exactly. Also, they had dogs, which I thought was pretty amazing. Uh, anyway, minimum security prison is not that bad. Martha probably had it pretty easy and then she had like five months of house, house arrest on top of that. Um, while she may have had it easier than some criminals, Carla, I would like to discourage you and all of our listeners from <laughs> replicating her bad behavior. Yeah, I'm not saying it's fun, but, uh, you know, it doesn't quite, it wasn't orange as the new black. It seemed a lot cushier than that. So what are the numbers? They've got 1,300 people prosecuting these crimes or, or investigating them rather. Like what kind of punishment do you get? Do tons of people get busted every year? Any idea on these numbers? So the punishment can vary widely, but generally speaking, it's considered a very serious crime. You could be looking at multiple, multiple years in prison. But here's the fascinating part. There are very few cases actually prosecuted of insider trading every year. So on average, the SEC prosecutes 50 cases of insider trading every year, which blows my mind that they have that many people working on this. And I think I saw that they have like a $550 million budget on this as well. So clearly the government is taking this very seriously. I think it's just a difficult thing to prosecute. So Preet Bharara is somebody that I know and respect. I listen to his podcast. Um, he's the former U.S. District Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Um, and he, he has publicly said that he feels like insider trading is just rampant and that it's just like not nearly enough of it is being caught. And you can understand why it is a hard thing to pin down, right? Like these are private conversations that happen. And just because the timing is suspicious doesn't mean you can actually pin somebody down for it. 
So there was a paper put out um, by the Duke University where they estimated that only about 15% of insider trading cases are actually being caught and prosecuted. Wow. I was going to guess that they had 1,300 people on staff with only 50 prosecutions a year because it was a deterrent, right? People knew that they had this big arsenal of data analysts and people to go evaluate whether or not something nefarious is going down. And that was to discourage people from doing this sort of thing because they knew their chances of getting caught were pretty bad. But it sounds like what you're telling everybody and publicizing (laughs) very widely on this podcast, Carla, is that this sort of crime might actually pay for the bulk of people. That Wow. I thought you were more of a... (laughs) A moral person and someone that we could all follow and look to for guidance. But so can the I just say, one of my favorite things in life is not being a criminal. Like it is so peaceful to not have to worry about, you know, saying the wrong thing because you might get caught and not have to like stress about. I mean, can you imagine just the fear that you would feel all the time if you had done some awful, awful thing? And insider trading is awful, right? I mean, it's it's criminalized and it's heavily penalized for a reason because the stock market should be a fair game. We should all have a fair shot at playing in it. And it's terrible that there are people who have insider knowledge and they're using that to benefit themselves and their loved ones. It's just, it makes me angry. It is fundamentally wrong. And I think insider trading is very serious. So I love getting to go to bed at night and thinking, you know what I didn't do today anything illegal. It's a good feeling and I highly recommend it to every person on planet earth. Thank you, Miss High and Mighty. (laughs) Well, I know Carla didn't love this episode of Sex in the City, even though it had a lot of good money moments and it sounds like she's not in love with the series anymore, but we hope you had fun listening to our episode today. Uh, Do not invest your money in your closet. Don't be afraid of the volatility. Get in that market, buy and hold and uh, watch it grow. Don't do insider trading or anything else illegal. (laughs) and pick your favorite (laughs) irrational number and comment below and let us know if the rule of 37 has changed your life (laughs) all right everybody thanks so much catch you next time take care